H-O-L. This is Jackson Unpacked, our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm your host, Hannah Mersbach. Coming up on today's show, the future of a stretch of land next to Grand Teton National Park could be decided, and emotions are running high around the Kelly parcel. It's all in our DNA. It is who we are in Wyoming. And later, we head to the top of Teton Pass, where a group of skiers hikes up a mountain with 90-pound packs in honor of war heroes. I think elected suffering night is the best we can do to commemorate, to really try and mimic their suffering. These stories and more coming up on Jackson Unpacked. Teton County has seen a boom in construction in recent years, with old homes being demolished and mansions going up in their place. But what happens to the old structures? One organization is trying to repurpose them and address the region's worsening housing crisis. KHOL's Emily Cohen gets a tour at one of those homes about an hour south of Jackson. It's all original. Obviously, the walls are new since they took it down to the studs. In a quiet neighborhood in Etna, Wyoming, Sarah Shervin and her husband Mitch walk around their new home. It's modern and open with big windows and filled with antiques. This is a Singer sewing machine that belonged to Mitch's grandmother, and she was born in Pinedale, I want to say 1936. Sarah and Mitch's families have been in the region for decades. Sarah points to a round plaque of a bucking cowboy on the living room wall. And then, like, you know, this was a Wyoming Centennial. There were only a certain number of these specially, you know, made and there's a handful of Teton County residents that have one. Um, Despite their roots in the region, the couple, both working professionals, almost had to leave. They lost their housing in East Jackson last summer and ended up camping and staying on friends' couches for several weeks while they searched for a solution. So we had furniture and three dogs and nowhere to live. We went down to Salt Lake looked at houses down there. We looked in Las Vegas. We didn't know what to do. We looked at condos in Jackson. Last year, the median sale price of a single-family home in Teton County was over $3 million, and inventory was historically low, nearly the lowest in 40 years. The couple ended up getting lucky. They eventually found a house in Star Valley, They now have to commute to work in Jackson, but the house was an unheard of price in the region, just under $600,000. So had we not have found this house, I can't say for sure we would have stayed. We probably honestly would have left. But this isn't a typical house. The home once sat in downtown Jackson on the Genevieve block near Persephone Bakery, known as the Red House. It was originally owned by descendants of the region's early settlers. It was slated for demolition before it was picked up off its foundation and moved 50 miles south. This was all coordinated by the local organization Shacks on Racks, which also bought the land and renovated the house for a fraction of the typical price of new construction. 
we turnkeyed it for about $120 a square foot, you know, and that's everything new. We did a 900 square foot garage with an additional bedroom, three bathrooms, four bedrooms, brand new kitchen. That's the organization's founder, Esther Judge Lennox, who says her group received the structure for free. And by donating the home, the original owners also saved tens of thousands of dollars in demolition fees. The Red House was one of 26 homes that Shacks on Racks has moved since it started in 2015. The condition of the home Shacks on Racks works with varies. Some are 100-year-old log cabins and are virtually uninhabitable. Others might be newer but require upgrades that would cost more than starting fresh. Some of the properties were purchased by millionaires and billionaires who want a clean slate on their newly purchased land. But not always. You know, because it's not just one type of person who doesn't want their house. Could be a regular family who just wants more space. Sometimes these aren't practical. If you were to keep an older structure on site and do an addition, you have to bring everything up to code. In Teton County, that could mean replacing a roof. That could mean furring out your walls to get your R value. I mean, that is such a variable. So, What is one person's trash is another person's treasure. In the organization's time... Judge Lennox estimates it has saved 10% of the inventory of homes slated for demolition in Teton County. But even if you can get a house for free through Shacks and Racks, finding a place to put it is a big challenge, especially with the high cost of land in the region. You know, we're like chasing this dragon of land ownership in Wyoming. And Judge Lennox says there's still a big gap in addressing the need and that we need to change perceptions about what is trash. Between 2017 and 2021, construction and demolition waste moving through Teton County's trash transfer station rose by 175%. Judge Lennox says helping reduce that waste is just one added benefit. I mean, I'm all about reduce, reuse, recycle, but that was not the intention when I started this. It hasn't been until we've moved 26 homes that we've realized that we've kept, you know, over a million and a half pounds of trash out of the trash. So whether reducing waste from the landfill or finding homes for locals, Claire Stump from the affordable housing nonprofit Shelter JH says anything that helps make a dent in the housing crisis is welcome. I definitely am not under the impression that there's going to be one solution that's going to solve everything. So I think people operating in the realms that matter to them, in this case for Shacks on Racks relocating homes, is one of the many solutions we'll need to pursue to make a, a dent in this problem. When proposals for affordable housing developments come before local officials, they often require adding density to town, something a portion of the community is opposed to. Stump says they're concerned about losing local character and Jackson's Western heritage. So moving existing and sometimes historic buildings could appeal to a range of people. I feel like that's one of those very, very rare solutions that appeals to people who need access to stable housing and people who have been maybe part of the old guard, and they're very averse to seeing larger developments show up in our community. For Sarah and Mitch Shervin, they were able to find affordable housing and have their own piece of Jackson history. I mean, it was just, it was good financially. It was nice to buy a piece of Jackson history. It allows us to stay here, continue to work our jobs, be part of the Teton County workforce. Housing Jackson and preserving Jackson can go hand in hand. Although, in some cases, it means doing so an hour from Jackson. At least the Shervins say 
they're in good company. In this subdivision alone, there's for sure five households of Jackson Hole High School graduates, which both Mitch and I are. I see more people down here now that I haven't seen in 20 years. And because of this home, she says her future children will be able to have a place in Wyoming. For KHOL, I'm Emily Cohen. You're listening to Jackson Unpacked. The potential sale of a one-mile square parcel of land bordering Grand Teton National Park is shaping up to be one of the most important and controversial land management issues facing the Wyoming legislature. You might remember state officials proposed putting the so-called Kelly parcel up for auction to the open market a few months back. This sparked mass opposition from conservationists in Jackson and across the state who want to see the land become part of the national park. Now, an amendment to the budget moving through the legislature could finally pave the way for that sale, if it survives. KHOL state government reporter Chris Clements talked to Senator Mike Garou, a Jackson Democrat, who's leading the charge to sell the Kelly parcel. What do you say to folks who their opinion on the Kelly parcel is that it shouldn't be sold? It's a priceless asset. It shouldn't be the the state shouldn't sell it at all. What what do you say to that? That's a great question. And the bottom line is, is that uh, this wasn't started by me. It was started by a piece of legislation that was passed years ago that said we are going to steady monetize high value properties in Teton County for disposal. So that lit the fuse, and the Office of State Lands and Investment has been working towards that goal because that's what the legislation says. And what seemed to happen from my vantage point over the past year was that people felt that the appraised price that was agreed to by the state and the potential buyer, the National Park Service, as the value at 64 point whatever million dollars. In talking with legislators, talking with other folks, um, actually standing out on the parcel, one afternoon with uh, the Speaker of the House, he said, I think $100 million would be a fair price. And I said, okay, and been working towards that number. And the, the great folks at the National Park History Foundation, National Park Foundation, um, have worked tirelessly to try to say, get, just to get to a point where they would say, okay, because... The difference, the federal government can't pay more than appraised price by law. And so philanthropy is going to have to step in to fill that gap. And so they have agreed to try. What I want to do is either sell it or not. But I want it to, if, if this passes, it's going to have a shelf life of the budget. And that's through the next biennium. And so the, the folks that are raising the money will have a window to do this deal. And the window will close in two years. The Constitution says that this money goes to the Common School Fund. I said, okay, we are going to authorize $100 million to the Common School Fund from what? To sell the Kelly parcel. That's what this is all about. And so that's why it's in the budget, because we're, we're just making sure that money goes to where it's supposed to go. Just like the Constitution says we've got to fund schools. Well, the budget has school funding all through it. 
So I believe it is A, constitutional, B, a normal course of government service, to of state government service to put that money in the budget and to put it towards the common school. Let's say that the section on the Kelly parcel in the budget bill, an amendment does erase it from the budget bill and, and this effort fails. Do you think that state land managers would again, maybe pursue the, the option of, of auctioning it off to private individuals? Yes. So that is kind of what's at stake here. Absolutely. When you went to the parcel and you saw it for, you know, for yourself, obviously you represent Teton County. What do you, what was your reaction? Oh, I've been on by and around that parcel for 40 plus years. It's in my district. It's in the DNA of everyone that lives in Teton County and that holds park values, holds our values of Teton County very close, as so many of us do. And it's not lost upon me. Um, it's now the 101st anniversary of the founding of the Jacksonville Monument, which became Grand Teton National Park. I'm hoping that the Wyoming legislature reaffirms a commitment that I think all Wyomingites have, that hardworking Wyoming families have, to the goals of a national park and having a national park in our state, having three national parks in our state, plus national monuments, recreation areas. It's all in our DNA. It is who we are in Wyoming. And everyone, 10,000 people came out on their own time to tell people in public hearings, don't make this a political football. Keep this in public lands. That's what this is all about. Do you think that it's likely it doesn't make it, the section in the budget bill does not make it. I've been here long enough to know everything's a possibility. And it won't be a done deal until the governor signs the budget bill and we're all on our way home. For me, that means by the time, after the governor signs the bill, after we gavel out, and I'm at about Rock Springs, when I turn the corner there at Rock Springs and start heading up 181, 191 to uh, to Jackson, I stop and get gas and get a pop and head north. That's when I'll believe That was state government reporter Chris Clements talking to local state lawmaker Mike Garou about potential plans to sell the Kelly parcel. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Impact from KHOL, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Jackson Unpacked is generously sponsored by the Snake River Sporting Club. At nearly 1,000 acres, this private western community accesses the Snake River and Bridger Teton National Forest. Not to mention a golf course, equestrian center, and fully functioning ranch. More information about excursions, amenities, and lifestyle at snakeriversportingclub.com. You're listening to Alabama-born musician Early James, performing in the KHOL studios. His music combines blues, folk, and country-tinged rock into what he refers to as Spooky Billy. Here, he's performing his song, Tumbleweed. James recently performed at the Virginian Saloon. K-12 presented the show alongside Nashville record label Easy Eye Sound, which was founded by the Black Keys' Dan Auerbach. The label will be bringing more artists like James to town in the coming months, and you can head over to 891 k to hear more live music and interviews with local musicians 
and bands in our studio. Thanks for tuning in to KHOL. I'm Hannah Mersbach. Hiking up a mountain with a 90-pound backpack may not sound fun to most people, but for a group of skiers in Jackson, that's exactly what they did on the night of February 18th. They were commemorating a historic climb from the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division. This specialized Army unit helped bring about the end of World War II, and similar tributes took place around the country. I met up with a group of skiers on the top of Teton Pass. It's nearly 7 on this stormy, frigid winter night, and a group of about eight guys in a rainbow of puffy jackets are grouped together at the base of Mount Glory, the over 1,500-foot mountain they're about to climb up and ski down. That's maxing out. (laughs) They're trying to get close to that magic number of 90 pounds. That's the weight that the 10th Mountain Division carried on their backs in their trainings. Caleb Hunger steps up to the scale, but he needs help lifting up his pack. Uh, Max is 75? 75, yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Should be about 80. About 80. You want 10 more? No. Hunger's big black pack looks like it's bursting at the seams. It's filled with gallon jugs of water, heavy climbing gear, and a pair of skis and two firearms strapped to the outside, just for show. He says he's a bit of a history buff and even contacted some friends. The American Legion post to be like, how realistic can we make this? But it was two last minute. We've got some Germans on top with, uh, <laughs> with guns. That joking voice belongs to Christian Beckwith, who's organizing the evening Sefferfest. He says the event is commemorating a World War II milestone against the Germans, an ascent from the Army's 10th Mountain Division, which specialized in cold weather and mountainous terrain. Comprised of an awful lot of the country's best climbers and skiers. Beckwith says on this night in 1945, 10,000 soldiers climbed what's called Riva Ridge under darkness. It's part of an Italian mountain range where Germans were stationed as part of the Gothic Line, a series of fortified summits and ridges. They took the Germans completely by surprise. And in taking Riva Ridge, they really opened the way to breaking the Gothic line. And they precipitated the German surrender of Italy. And that hastened the end of the war. Beckwith knows all this because he hosts a podcast on the subject. 90-pound rucksack. Story of the 10th Mountain Division and the dawn of outdoor recreation in America. A longtime mountaineer, he wanted to know more about the history of climbing in the Tetons and found that many of the members of the Mountain Division climbed in the region before the war and came back after. They fanned back out into the mountains that they'd fallen in love with when they were training. And so that resulted in an explosion in skiing and in climbing post-war. He says they started about 65 ski areas across the country, including Snow King and Jackson. And they helped start the Jenny Lake Rangers in Grand Teton National Park. They developed, you know, the fitness of mountain athletes, but then also the camaraderie um, that we call the Fellowship of the Rope. So they had an incredible esprit de corps. Get a hand with the pack. What's up? Oh, hand with the pack, yeah. Wyatt Sullivan helps Beckwith put his pack on. Sullivan just got back from college and is much closer to the age of the soldiers that night. Some of them were just out of high school. What does the 10th mean to him? I'd say badassery. 
and making do with what you got. I think it means a lot to be able to work with the materials they had in that era. I think elected suffering night is the best we can do to commemorate, to, to really try and mimic their suffering. In honor, Sullivan says he has eight two-gallon jugs of water in his pack, all of which he plans to pour out at the top before the ski back down. He steps up to the scale next. Let's see. I think we're going to break it. That's almost 90. Let's go, the 90-pound rucksack! <laughs> and with that, the group sheds their warm, puffy jackets for what's sure to be a sweaty hike up Mount Glory, a fitting name, according to Beckwith. The call sign for the 10th Mountain Division is Climb to Glory, so this is somewhat appropriate. At the same time, similar hikes happened at Ski Cooper, Colorado, where the 10th Mountain Division learned to ski, and at another training location outside Lake Placid in New York. And to keep the memory of these men alive, Beckwith hopes more mountain communities take part next year. For K-12 News, I'm Hannah Mersbach. And last up on the show, I'm happy to announce we have a new reporter on our team here at KHOL. Dante Philpola Inkney recently joined the newsroom. He grew up on the prairies of eastern Montana before moving to Missoula to study journalism. KHOL executive director Emily Cohen sat down with him for a conversation about his background and passion for journalism. Well, welcome to KHOL. We are very excited to have you here at the station, and I know our community is excited to have another reporter as well. Who or what inspired you to become a journalist? You know, I think if I had to say a person that inspired me to become a journalist, I'd say my uh, grandpa, probably my biggest role model in life, and he's always encouraged me to uh, to do something that, you know, serves the public good. You know, journalism, I when I was going to college, I wanted to study something where I would be learning about everything and not just one thing. And I think journalism has really done that for me. And speaking of that, you've written for a couple of papers, including for the student newspaper at the University of Montana. And you also had an internship at Montana Public Radio. What draws you specifically to radio? What really drew me to audio in particular is how intimate it is. I think there's something about hearing somebody's words from them, from their own voice. I think there's something really powerful about that. And I love the creativity of it, the honesty of it, I would say. Can you tell us about a story that you are particularly proud of reporting? Yeah, you know, I think the one that comes straight to to mind is I interned at this small community newspaper called the Boulder Monitor. It's uh, in between Butte, Montana and Helena, Montana, the state's capital. Tiny town, and I was hiking one weekend in the mountains, and I ran into this guy in state's smallest state park. Um, it's this old mining ghost town, and this, there's six people that still live there, and this old man was one of them, and he he just caught me. It's interesting, and the editors there allowed me to like spend a day with him after I initially met him there, and the story was ultimately about this old man and his incapability to, you know, do some of the functions that are required to live 
you know, off the grid in this sort of like remote place. And one of those was cutting enough wood so he could get through the winter and he was struggling with it. The story was published and a local like lumber company ran up cords of wood to him uh, enough that he was able to, you know, stay up there another year. And I think that's like really like what is so special about journalism, right? I think especially community journalism is that you're able to like really put a face in a, in a person to a real community need. And, and, you know, people are able to respond. I think that journalism is such a public service. And that was one case where I saw it firsthand and it, it stuck with me. What stories here in Jackson are you most excited to cover? I like so many in the Jackson community, like the outdoors. I like the environment. I'm I'm so excited to cover the outdoors. I'd say other than that, I I think Jackson in particular is such a unique community for the Mountain West. You know, I, I'm from Montana. I'm seeing a lot of these social issues that are that are propping up and, you know, have been developing for a while. And I think I think Jackson has had to deal with these, you know, issues, events, policies sooner and to a greater degree than a lot of communities throughout the Mountain West. Yeah, we're kind of the canary in the coal mine for housing and environmental issues elsewhere. Shifting gears a little bit, because we are a music station or largely a music station, what music moves you? Yeah, I'd say the bulk of my music, Americana, folk, country. But I, I really enjoy a lot of music. I do. I Anything that can get you moving and grooving, I, I think I'm into it. Is there a particular artist of late that you've been really digging? I have been a huge Charlie Crockett fan for, for a long time. Um, I'd say one that's like I'm really into as we speak is the, the Red Clay Strays. I think that they are such an incredible group and with such a unique sound. I do not know them, so I will check them out. Anything else you want listeners to know about you? Just say if you see me on the uh, the street or you recognize my unique name some place around town, please say hi. You know, my email is posted on the website. I have a Twitter page at dphilbolaankney. Send me a message. Um, I'm always open to uh, story ideas, and I'd love to hear about the community. Yeah, if listeners can... Email Dante tips at Dante at jhcr.org. Thank you so much for joining us on this interview and also for joining us on the KHL team. Yeah, thanks so much, Emily. I'm excited. That was KHL's new reporter, Dante Philpola Ankney, talking with executive director Emily Cohen. You can hear his voice on our airwaves and check out his bylines on our website, 891khwell.org. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Hannah Mersbach, and this is KHOL Jackson Unpacked.